You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Lord, now as we're about to feast on your word, we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes that we would see what you want us to see. Awaken us from our slumber and raise us up to new heights of affections for our great Redeemer, and swallow us up in holy passion to glorify your name. We pray all this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please open up your Bibles with me to John 21, 12 to 17. John chapter 21, verse 12 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. Why are you at this retreat? I suppose you are here at this leader's retreat because you are a leader in some capacity or servant in some capacity. Some of you might not know why you're here, but I think most of you are here because you want to be equipped and you want to be used greatly by God for His kingdom. Well, there will be seasons in your Christian life when you are burning hot for God. Yet, there may come a time when you slip and when you fall hard into sin, when you stray away, when you grow apathetic. There may be seasons in your life when your failures are louder than grace and you are left paralyzed by guilt, by shame. Maybe for some of you, that cold and dry season is now. And whether or not you find yourself right now in the dark night of the soul, God has a word of consolation and exhortation for you today from our text. There are five encouragements that I want to share with you today. Here's the first one. It is possible to fail 
greatly and still love God. It is possible to fail greatly and still love God. Verses 15 to 17 records a dialogue between Jesus and Simon Peter. And at the heart of this dialogue is this question posed to Peter. Do you love me? And of course, this all-important question is something that you and I must answer as well. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? We know that just a few days before this dialogue, something occurred, which would be the most embarrassing and shameful moment in Peter's entire life. Jesus is arrested to be unjustly tried and sentenced to death. Peter follows from a distance, but is confronted by the crowd. They recognize him as one of Jesus' disciples. And in his moment of great weakness, Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. He cowardly denies having any association with Jesus because he was afraid. He was afraid of what the crowd might do to him. But Peter vowed to follow Jesus, didn't he? Peter made an oath to lay down his life for Jesus. Peter was supposed to be the courageous leader of the disciples. Yet when the rubber hit the road and following Jesus meant danger, hardship, persecution, Peter quickly abandoned his master. And so the question is, did Peter really love Jesus? You know, I'll be the first to admit, I have said the words, I love you, Jesus. But sometimes my heart, my actions, my thoughts, my decisions have said otherwise. How about you? You say you love God. You think you love God. But then why did you choose sin over God? Why did you take and eat the forbidden thing? Why did you lie? Why did you steal? Why did you cheat? Why did you fall into pornography? Why did you commit other forms of sexual immorality? And the list, list just goes on and on and on and on. We say that we love God at one time, and at another time, we can disobey God, dishonor God, and dismiss His commands. Like Peter, sometimes when it, comes, when it becomes very difficult to follow Jesus, we turn our backs on Him. We belittle Him. We deny Him. Perhaps you're not found in a situation like Peter where people are trying to violently harm you because of your association with Jesus. But even still, in moments of great weakness, we are all more than capable of denying Christ and His Lordship over our lives. 
And let me tell you, it is quite a relief that Peter failed and that it is recorded for us to read about it today. The great apostle Peter was a great failure. This man who was personally chosen and discipled by Jesus Christ, leader of the New Testament church, was a lot like us, after all, weak and vulnerable. Here is biblical proof that a person can fail and fail greatly and yet still love God sincerely. I'm sure when Jesus asked Simon Peter, do you love me? That question cut to his heart. Perhaps he was still overcome with shame, with regret for denying, for betraying his Lord. But how does Peter respond? He responds, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A second time, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. A third time, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Despite his failure, despite the shame that he may carry, Peter claims that he loves Jesus. And he does not appeal to his emotions and his feelings to prove his love. He does not appeal to his worthiness to prove his love. But rather, Peter appeals to the Lord's omniscience. Lord, you know all things. You can see my heart. You know that I love you. The all-knowing, all-seeing God does not reject Peter's declaration of love. Jesus knew that Peter truly loved him, not perfectly, of course, but sincerely. Sincerely. As a matter of fact, Peter's love for Jesus was confirmed by his repentance. Repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse chapter 7, verse 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's the difference between Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot. They both betray Christ. They both deny Christ. They both experience sorrow, regrets. But Judas experiences worldly sorrow, devoid of faith in God's mercy, and it ends in death. He hangs himself. But Peter weeps bitterly, and he throws himself at the feet of the resurrected Christ. Consider King David, who was a man after God's own heart. In his moment of great weakness, 
he committed a heinous sin, adultery with Bathsheba, and even murdered her husband Uriah. But when King David is confronted with his sin, he acknowledges his evil heart, pleads for mercy, and turns back to the Lord. He repents. You see, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. And a pattern of life lived in earnest repentance demonstrates true and sincere love for God. Perhaps you've failed greatly. Perhaps you've strayed for too long. It's been a long summer. But are you willing to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ? Are you willing to make a change? Are you willing to throw yourself in the arms of your heavenly Father? Because there are plenty of room in the Father's house for His prodigal sons and daughters. That's His promise. Encouragement number two. God is not surprised by our failures. God can do all things, we know that. But there are some things that actually God cannot do. For instance, God cannot lie. God cannot sin. What is more, God cannot learn. God cannot learn new information. He cannot gain new knowledge because God already knows everything. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the future. He knows all possibilities. He knows more than Dr. Strange. Therefore, God cannot be surprised. Do you think Jesus was surprised by Peter's failure? Absolutely not. I can prove that to you. Jesus possesses divine omniscience he already knew that Peter would deny him because Jesus predicted it. In John 13, 38, Jesus says to our overconfident Peter, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And surely it comes to pass. That's why this scene right here in John 21 is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. The risen Christ appears before Peter, and he is not angry. He is not appalled by Peter's failure. But in verse 12 to 13, we see that Jesus is serving Peter breakfast. Breakfast. What grace is this? That a traitor and a filthy sinner gets to eat in the very presence of the Holy God. Eat first, talk later. Jesus' first concern is to feed his beloved disciple. And verse 15 says, once they had finished eating, he proceeds to converse with Peter. 
You see, Jesus could have taken the opportunity to scold him, to interrogate Peter. Why did you do this? Why did you betray me? I told you you would do this. Why couldn't you be smarter? He didn't do that. Rather, Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to confess his love. Friends, God is not surprised by how evil you are. God is not surprised by your failures. God is not surprised by your secret sins that you're hiding from everybody else. God knows. God is not shocked. God cannot be caught off guard by your bad decisions. No matter how far you've gone, you're not out of reach. You're not out of His reach, the reach of His grace. And so turn back, turn back to Him. Turn away from the path of destruction and turn to Christ, the compassionate and kind Savior. Encouragement number three. God loves to restore and to redeem sinners. God loves to restore and to redeem sinners. Three times Jesus asked a question to Simon Peter, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And we're told in verse 17 that by the third time Jesus asked this question, Peter was very hurt. He was hurt. He had already answered yes wholeheartedly. Was Jesus doubting his sincerity? Had he lost his Lord's trust forever? So for the third time, Jesus, uh, Peter cries out, Lord, you know everything. Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter did not understand why Jesus kept asking him the same question over and over again. But you see, Jesus was doing something very wonderful for Peter. Jesus was not doubting Peter's sincerity. Instead, Jesus was inviting Peter to reverse his denials and reaffirm his love for Jesus. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked Peter this question. And three times Jesus allows for Peter to confess his love. You see, there is full redemption and restoration for Peter. But restoration and redemption had come at a cost, a hefty cost. Jesus paid with his own life. Jesus secured the salvation for Peter and for all his beloved. Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross so that we would be justified. For anyone who would trust in him, for the greatest of sinners here in this room who would take hold of him, Jesus Christ, he takes away your sins. He takes your guilt. He takes your shame. 
and then he takes your place in judgment. And then in turn, he gives you his name. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his favor with the Father. He gives you eternal life. But just because you have been justified and forgiven, it doesn't mean you can remain passive and idle in the war against sin. You have a responsibility. Jesus loved you unto death, and he did not die so that you can continue indulging in your sins. But he died to set you free from guilt and from the power of sin. The Spirit of God is daily at work in you to change you, to conform you into the image of his Son. And one day, in the day of glory, all presence of sin will be removed from us and wiped away from the world. That's the promise of salvation. But until that day comes, you and I, we must strive for obedience and holiness of life. Upon receiving the grace of God, it produces in us a new way of life and new desires, one that is in keeping with the gospel. The byproduct of grace received is grace lived out. And since our lives have been effectively redeemed by Christ. That means every aspect of our lives must serve to glorify and magnify Christ. There can be no secular and sacred divide. You know what that means? That means you're a Christian here at this retreat. You're a Christian when you go home in the privacy of your room. You're a Christian in your workplace. You're a Christian in campus, and you're a Christian when you're out with your non-Christian friends. You're a Christian 24-7. Are you honoring Christ in every aspect and spectrum of life, or are you just wearing a mask here when you're around other Christians? When you identify as a Christian, do you know what you're doing? When you identify as a Christian, essentially you are putting on the name of Christ. It is a great privilege to bear the name of Christ, dear Christian. But the question is, are you living consistently with the name that you bear? Are you really living like a Christian before the face of God? Because you can deceive me, you can deceive other people, you can deceive yourself. But God will not be deceived. The very term Christian, that word literally means follower of Christ. And this term or nickname was actually made up by the persecutors of the faith in the first century. The Romans, the Jews, they called these people followers of Christ, Christians. 
And it was meant as a mocking insult. It was an insult. Remember this, that Jesus Christ was despised by that society. He was despised in his time. And so all his followers were given his name. In the eyes of that society, these pitiful Christians, they followed a humiliated and crucified loser. A loser. A phony. A fake. But these Christians, they were so in love with their Christ that they cherished every word that he spoke and followed every instruction he gave. They were so obsessed with their Christ that their whole lives revolved around him. They spoke like him, they thought like him, they acted like him, they even suffered like him. That's what being a Christian had always meant. A life completely directed and dictated and shaped by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the unfortunate reality today is that the term Christian has lost all significance. Now when someone tells me that they are a Christian, I don't care. But I say, show me your life. Are you living a life worthy of the calling? Because by the way that someone lives their life, I can see what they believe. I can see whether they fear God. I can see whether they love Christ. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect in order to be a Christian. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Nobody is perfect. But if you are really a Christian, if you have really tasted God's love and grace, then transformation begins to occur. It is inevitable. It will happen. It must happen. And our lives begin to show Christ's work of redemption in us and through us. It begins to show. A homeless orphan is living and sleeping on the streets. He hasn't taken a shower in days. His clothes are all stained and, and torn and ripped up. He barely has enough food to eat. He has no money. He buys drugs, shoots it into his vein. One day, an expensive car stops right in front of this homeless orphan and comes out the world's richest man. The rich man, out of his compassion for the child, takes him back to his mansion cleans him up, feeds him fine food, dresses him in royal clothes, gives him a great education, and adopts this child, this orphan, as his own son. Okay? This child, who was once homeless, is now part of the royal family and is entitled to inherit everything from this rich man. Everything. Great wealth. But how tragic and how appalling would it be 
if we found the child back in the streets, back into a life of addiction and drugs and searching for leftover food in the dumpsters. This adopted child has forgotten his newfound identity. He has forgotten his privileges that he has graciously inherited from, from this man. And such is the life of many defeated and miserable Christians today. If you are really a Christian, a child of God, and you're miserable, you're defeated, you have forgotten your identity. Dear brothers and sisters, let us not be content with our old way of life, old way of living. Let us not be content with momentary and fleeting pleasures of this world. Let us not give way to the devil and his snare, but let us live up to the higher calling that we have received. Let us live like children of the King. Encouragement number four. Our sovereign God has good purposes for our worst days. Our sovereign God has good purposes for our worst days here on earth. In Luke's account of Jesus predicting Peter's denial, there is some additional detail we find. We can turn to Luke 22, 31 to 34 here. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. What is sifting wheat? Sifting wheat is the process of violently shaking something, violently shaking the piles of wheat through a coarse screen to separate the wheat berries from the debris and waste. So you shake it violently. And apparently, Satan asked to sift Simon Peter and the disciples like wheat to shake them up. And so take this in for a second, okay? Follow, follow with me here. Satan, the devil, the tempter, must ask God for permission to act. In other words, the devil cannot harm God's children unless God permits it, unless God allows it. The devil cannot do anything. This is what it means for God to be sovereign, to be in control. God possesses unmatched power, wisdom, authority to do whatever He chooses in creation. This means that God is ultimately in control over everything. God is in control over every square inch of the universe. 
and every event in history. That's why it's called His story. Nothing can happen apart from His decree and permission. Human beings, not even Satan, can overrule or frustrate God's plan. And God's sovereignty is not arbitrary or random, but God's sovereignty is purposeful. It is always purposeful. There's meaning behind what He decrees. It's good. His plans are good. This is what we call the doctrine of providence, God's purposeful sovereignty by which He orchestrates all things together to achieve His perfect and good purpose. So, what does this mean for Peter? It means that Peter's failure was not without purpose. Right? Are you following with me here? Peter's failure was not without purpose. Jesus says to him, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I pray for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. God shall allow Satan to sift Peter to shake him up. God shall allow Peter to fall, to fall really hard. But God shall not allow Peter to finally fall away. You see that? In other words, Peter will be knocked down, but he will not be knocked out. His faith will waver, but his faith will not fail, for Christ intercedes for him and preserves him. He preserves his own. Perhaps Peter needed to be humbled to become more effective, like a dull blade that needed to be sharpened, because Jesus tells him that when he turns back, keyword when, not if, but when he turns back, he is to strengthen his brothers. And in John 21, back to John 21, Jesus instructs him to feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And indeed, Peter will go on to be a great shepherd. He will go on to be a pillar of the church. He would be instrumental in leading thousands upon thousands to the Lord Jesus Christ. The sovereign God had a purpose for Peter's failure to achieve good. And this purpose is still working itself out today, 2,000 years later, for Peter's story of failure and restoration serves to strengthen you and me today. We're encouraged by this story today, by Peter's failure today. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged by this. We are hard-pressed, but not crushed. 
perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. For the sovereign Lord sustains his children. Perhaps you have failed. Perhaps you have failed so miserably. Perhaps you're living in your worst days or your worst days are ahead of you. But remember the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 8.28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. This means you cannot mess up too much to mess up God's plan for your life. You cannot mess up too much to mess up God's ultimate plan. This is the confidence that we need to have. God works all things together. All your successes and your failures. All your good days and your worst days. All your hardships, all your circumstances. For your good, for His glory. Maybe we can't understand exactly how everything fits on this side of heaven. Why God allowed this or that tragedy. Why God allowed this suffering to happen in your life. We may not fully understand on this side of heaven why God allowed you to fail so miserably, why God allowed you to stray, why God allowed this great struggle in your life, why God allowed this thorn in the flesh in your life that which He doesn't take away. Why? Well, we don't know all the details, but we know this. God works together all things for your good. Rest assured, God has good purposes. He is conforming you into the image of His Son to make you holy, to make you useful to the Master. That's His work. And so this brings me to my last and final encouragement. God loves to use imperfect and weak people. God loves to use imperfect and weak people. Simon Peter is just a perfect example for this. He was so unimpressive. He was an unimpressive fisherman. We talked about it yesterday. In Acts 4.13, Peter is described as an ordinary, unschooled, ordinary man. The Greek word here used is idiotai, which we're where we get the word idiot in English. And what was most unimpressive about Peter was that in his moment of weakness, he proved himself to be a coward, to be a failure, the thrice denier. Peter had disqualified himself. It is a terrible feeling to feel disqualified, to be unfit for service. But lest there be any doubt that Jesus had fully restored and redeemed Peter, Jesus reinstates and recommissions Peter in front of all the other disciples 
who are listening to this conversation. And Jesus gives him this charge. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And just as Jesus feeds Peter breakfast, now Peter must do likewise and feed his sheep. No matter how disqualified and unfit that Peter felt, no matter how weak he is, no matter how flawed he is, he would not dare to deny the Lord once again and to disobey this commission. By obeying Christ in caring for the flock of God, Peter's love for Christ would prove to be genuine, to be authentic, to be sincere. And I would venture to say that all the great men and women of the past, in the Bible, in church history, all of them, all of the great men and women that God used greatly, they were all great sinners, restored by grace. Isn't this true? God never uses a good person. There is no one good but God. You want to be a servant of the Lord? You want to be an evangelist? You want to be a messenger of God? Weakness is essential. Weakness is a requirement. Because we are but jars of clay. We are jars of clay. And God has determined to use frail and fragile things to carry His message in order to magnify His own strength and power, not yours. You have no power. We have no power. The power is not in the messenger. It is the message that is, that is powerful. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. You are just a beggar telling other beggars where to go to find food, the bread of life. And so we must tell the world about the grace of God in Jesus Christ that saved us from bondage to sin, from the depths of hell. Jesus Christ has come into the world not to cancel sinners, but to cancel their debts. Dear brothers and sisters, do one thing today. Admit your weakness. Admit your weakness because God is not impressed with your perceived strength. You have no strength. Admit you are weak. Admit you are nothing without Him. Admit it. You must admit it if you want to be useful. And serve your King Jesus by serving His flock. Give yourself fully to the work and mission of the church and the Great Commission. And serve with all zeal and confidence. Confidence not in yourself 
Confidence not in your performance, but confidence in God's full approval of you in Jesus Christ. You already have it. You already have the Father's approval. You have it. Now go and make disciples of all nations. You see, we are not defined by our competence. You are not defined by your failures. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your successes or achievements. You are not defined by your worst days. But you are only defined by Christ. You are a child of God. And He's telling you to go and feed His sheep. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your immeasurable love for us, for sinners. Lord, we all deserve to be canceled. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve hell and wrath for our sins we have committed before you, the eternal and holy being. And yet, Jesus Christ stood in our place. He bore all our sin. He bore all our guilt, all our shame. He took it all and He died. Lord, we thank You so much that we live now by Your resurrected power. Lord, we thank You that we can be confident of this, that we are your children adopted into your family all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Help us now to live for you. Our hearts beat for you and you alone. And so Lord, would you take our lives Take our gifts, take our time, take our future, take everything, for you are worthy. Take everything and maximize it for your kingdom, for your glory. Would you do this? Do this in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.